When I thought about how to put together this week's episode, I was pretty sure I was going to have a tough time thinking about just which match to feature first. And that, right there, was when Joel Ward headed the ball into the back of the net at Stamford Bridge, and we're starting with the Palace Report. It's episode three of The View from the Western Stand, and it starts right now. Hello, hello. Yes, hello, hello indeed. Welcome to episode three. It is Tuesday. It is time for the view from the Western Stand. I'm your host, Michael McGarry. Thanks again for joining us. Uh, big show this week. Obviously, we're going to talk a whole lot about Crystal Palace uh, and the shock, even for a fan, the shock victory that uh, the Eagles had at Stamford Bridge this weekend. The rest of uh, some more shocking results around the Premier League. The transfer window finally coming to a close uh, in England and all around Europe and what that means for teams. We're going to talk about the UEFA Champions League draw. We are going to talk about Irish football. Get excited for that. The upcoming international break. What are we going to do? And then, finally, we're going to have our senior foreign correspondent come in here, and we're going to talk a little bit about baseball. But let's get it started uh, with the action from the Premier League over the weekend, and there's no other place to start than with the Palace Report. Uh, Coming into Saturday's matchup at Stamford Bridge, it looked like it was going to be an uphill climb for Palace against Chelsea, uh, even with the the subtraction of John Terry, who had to sit on a red card suspension. As it turned out, they really could have used him at the back, the Blues could have, uh, because Crystal Palace had their way with Kurt Zuma and Gary Cahill, uh, finishing up with a 2-1 victory at Stamford Bridge. Just an absolutely heroic victory for the Eagles, uh, and really a shock result. Um, Even in the latter stages of the game, as well as Palace played, Chelsea were holding it together, uh, were were looking for a, a tying goal, which came in the 79th minute, courtesy of, of all people, Radamel Falcao, who Jose Mourinho had substituted just minutes before, thus making Jose Mourinho once again look like a genius. But in the end, it was not enough goals in the 65th minute from Bakary Sacco, who, buy your Bakary Sacco jerseys now. This kid is going to feature for a long time in this league. I just hope he's able to stay at Palace for a very long time before... Uh, the transfer window opens ultimately, and and he'll be sent away for a very large amount of money. Uh, so 65 minutes, uh, Bakary Sacco uh, scoring on the end of just an incredible wing run from Yannick Bellassi, uh, and and finishing with great uh, strength and character and quality right in front of the goal. And then, as I mentioned, Falcao scoring on 79 minutes, looking as if Chelsea were just going to park the bus, take their point, and uh, move into the international break. But it was not to be. Less than 120 seconds later, Joel Ward, who I had maligned on Twitter about 60 seconds before for not defending on the Falcao goal, uh, raced back up the pitch, found a cross uh, right on his forehead, guiding it into the back of the net, and it was a lead they would not relinquish as Palace beat Chelsea at Stamford Bridge 2-1. Just an amazing result for Alan Pardew for the work that's being done there. But I cannot say enough about how Palace went into Stamford Bridge and totally annihilated Jose Mourinho's game plan. They were able to control the flow and the pace. They were not able to possess. Chelsea were still mostly in possession, especially through the first half. 
uh, which ended, uh, the first half ended goalless, but Palace in the second half redoubled their efforts. By the time Sacco scored on 65 minutes, it was very clear that that was a goal that was coming. Being able to move on the wings all the way to the, the byline and cross back. When I was 10 years old on John Faria's soccer team in Gloucester, Massachusetts, the first thing he taught us was take the ball to the byline, get it back in the middle because that's when good things happen. And Palace showed that if you can do that against the Chelsea defense, which really had been playing better even without John Terry, uh, if you're able to do that, good things will happen. And indeed, they did. And especially being able to control that pace, control that flow. I can't say enough about Yoan Kabai and about the wing play between Bakary Sacco and Yala Balassi and Jason Punchin, those four players were able to absolutely control the game when it was needed. And Palace have three points on the road, a very crucial three points, so that they now can sit, this is true, second in the table in the Premier League and set up a one versus two matchup after the international break with Manchester City at Fortress Selhurst. Uh, I'm already, uh, I, I'm already just palpitating, uh, if you can, if you can tell, with excitement uh, for this match that's coming up. It is going to be a sensational one, which Crystal Palace will almost certainly lose five nil. But at least the build-up, we're going to feel like we're going somewhere. Um, you know, Man City, and we're going we're gonna to talk about Man City later on, especially as we talk about the transfer window, uh, you know, are, are every bit the champions in waiting. And it's going to be a slog for Palace to, to get anything out of this game. But if they play the same way they did at Chelsea, I think they could at least force a point. I think, you know, Man City's going to have a lot of players away uh, on, on international break uh, with international duty, especially Europeans who have to qualify for the, for the UEFA uh, Euro tournament coming up. Uh, so this is not just a friendly week. This is uh, this is real game action. That's uh, that most of these players are going to be facing. So, if I had to take on Man City with the run of form they're on, I would take it right after the international break. And uh, I can only hope that that is an opportunity that Palace take as well. Nonetheless, just a great match. Uh, I'm sure uh, NBC Sports Network will be rerunning it. Uh, catch it if you can. If you didn't, uh, just a sweet. Sweet victory. And, you know, we've talked a lot about Palace, but Chelsea, uh, very much a team in crisis, crisis, crisis. Chelsea is uh, in, in a very bad way right now. Nemanja Matic, I don't know who the man is that they've put in his jersey and is purporting to play on the field, but he's a night and day different player than the Nemanja Matic, who was controlling central midfield last year for Chelsea, uh, and so I'm not sure what they did with the with the real one. I wonder if this is something kind of like multiplicity, where the the clones just sort of after after a while um, begin to lose uh, strength and ability to be humans. Uh, and I just wonder if that's what's happening to Matic. I mean, he's uh, just not the same player. Obviously, they miss John Terry a lot. They were not able to get John Stones in the transfer window from Everton, despite offering upwards of forty million pounds did not trigger the release clause. Everton doubled down and said, we're keeping the player, which I think is frankly very smart for Everton. Not great for Chelsea, who are clearly having trouble on the back line. Uh, and Thibaut Courtois can only do so much. Uh, we'll talk more about Chelsea in the coming weeks, I am sure. 
nonetheless, the sweet, sweet victory for the Eagles is one that I think all Palace fans will relish for quite a long time. Despite my excitement, there were actually other matches in the Premier League and all across England this weekend. Uh, two very surprising results as well that I want to I wanna cover in a bit more detail. Um, the first one is actually less of a surprise than it, it would seem to be on its face. At the Liberty Stadium in South Wales, Swansea City 2, Manchester United 1, uh, Juan Mata opened the scoring for the Red Devils in the 48th minute. Uh, shortly thereafter, Swansea put the game away with goals from Andrew Ayew on 61 minutes and Bafetin Bigomis on 66 minutes and were able to hold on for the 2-1 victory. Um, United, obviously, uh, is, is still in a building phase, or were still in a building phase, uh, moving into the transfer window. They've been able to uh, make some changes, though, <clears throat> not all the ones they would have liked, uh, and we'll get to that. Uh, this is, however, a team that needs more strength at the top, where uh, Wayne Rooney, despite his performance in Europe in the week uh, against Bruges, uh, was not able to find the back of the net, still hasn't in the Premier League uh, in, in several months. That's going to have to change. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about the addition of uh, Anthony Martial from Monaco, uh, and that may help, although bringing in a relatively unproven 19-year-old into the squad to play with Memphis Depay uh, will provide pace, but I'm not sure that it will provide the, the finishing ability and the cool head that is needed. Hopefully for the Red Devils, it will make um, Wayne Rooney better. We spent all this time talking about Manchester United with this game. The real story here is Swansea. I think if there's a team that's going to contend to break up the top four of Arsenal, Man City, Man United and Chelsea, uh, it, it could very well be Swansea City uh, going to Europe next year. The, uh, you know, Gary Monk has put together an exceptional squad in South Wales. Gomis is a world-class striker and finisher. Uh, Andrew Ayew, who came over on a free transfer, may be the, the story of the year in the Premier League, the way that he's playing. And I would not be surprised uh, to see more results like this from Swansea. They're, it's a very tough... Uh, environment to go into as an away side. It is a very strong team, especially at uh, at midfield where John Joe Shelby uh, can control a lot of uh, the movement uh, from his position. And having Lucas Fabianski in goal uh, doesn't hurt either. And so credit to Gary Monk, credit, credit to the South Wales club. They've done a lot in terms of bulking up this team over time uh, to be competitive in, in, in the Premier League. And I honestly wouldn't be surprised if at the end of the season, when we are at episode 35 or 36 of, of The View from the Western Stand, uh, we are talking about Swansea City booking travel to Europe for next year to play in the Champions League, much less the Europa League. Uh, I, I do think that's going to be uh, on the cards, especially where you've seen Chelsea begin to falter in the early season now. Eight points adrift of Man City already. That's going to be a tough eight points to make up. And Arsenal not making any moves in the transfer window. We will talk more about Arsenal in a bit. Um, but I think the opening is there for uh, a team like Swans to really come in and break up that, that top four. Uh, the other big result of the weekend at Anfield in Liverpool. Uh, Liverpool nil, West Ham United three. West Ham United coming off of two lackluster performances after their opening week uh, Nessun Dorma performance at the Emirates where they beat Arsenal 2-0. Uh, were able to put three in the back of the net while Philippe Coutinho was sent off for Liverpool. It is their first win at Anfield since 1963. 
Goals from Lanzini on 3 minutes, Noble on 29 minutes, and Sacco on 90 minutes, powering the Irons to victory there. Uh, the, the, the thing to remember about where Liverpool is here is there is a lack of faith in what Brendan Rodgers has been putting out on the field. Liverpool, another team, relatively quiet in terms of players in during the transfer window. Uh, Joe Gomez being the unique exception, um, playing at left back, uh, came over earlier in the summer, and I think will actually feature and play quite well uh, for Liverpool. That said, there are, there are many more needs this, this team has. And un- being unable or unwilling to uh, make those moves during the, uh, during the transfer window sets Brendan Rodgers at a disadvantage when he is already on very thin ice with the supporters And uh, knowing the ownership group, Fenway Sports Group, as uh, we all do here in the U.S. and their uh, work with the Boston Red Sox, I would say that Rodgers is on thin ice generally. Uh, They're going to have to show real improvement over the next few weeks. Having played very well, especially that nil-nil draw with Arsenal just a week earlier, uh, uh, this game could be a total aberration. Players' heads may have been uh, elsewhere looking towards the international break, but nonetheless... A very lackluster performance, and they'll need to right that ship quickly. They won't now be able to do that through the transfer window, which is closed. Elsewhere in the Premier League, let's wrap it up. Uh, we can begin with Arsenal on the strength of, of a Fabio Colasini own goal, beating Newcastle 1-0. Man City over Watford 2-0 to stay top of the table and to have uh, yet to relinquish a goal this season. Bournemouth 1, Leicester City 1 on a late goal from Jamie Vardy. Aston Villa 2, Sunderland 2, a draw there. Uh, West Bromwich able to beat a 9-man Stokes side 1-0. Tottenham and Everton played to a 0-0 draw. And Southampton 3, Norwich City 0 with two goals from Dusan Tadic uh, and Graziano Pella there. Uh, All right. Uh, let's look at uh, the fantasy world. You've got a, a little bit of time to build your fantasy teams up through the international break. If you are looking to make a change and you haven't for some reason picked him up yet, Bafatimi Gomez, uh, who we, we talked about earlier, is still available uh, for £7.4 million. Pick him up immediately. Do that uh, right now. In fact, I'll sit and wait. Good. I've poured myself a glass of wine while you were doing that. Uh, thank you for for making sure that your team is now up to an acceptable standard. Look, Gomez is an incredible finisher. He has, uh, he's got John Joe Shelby making sure the ball is right where he wants it at all times. Uh, he's got free reign uh, to, to, to make a whole lot of, uh, uh, to make a whole lot of bad news happen for, for defenses. And I think he's going to be on uh, many goals before this season is over. So he's a good one to pick up now while he's still cheap. Uh, his price will only continue to accelerate as he has this run of form. Uh, we talked a little bit about the table. Uh, as I said, Man City at the top on 12 points. Your Crystal Palace Football Club Eagles in second on nine points from four games. Just an exceptional run of form, but a big run coming after the international break, starting with Man City at Fortress Selhurst uh, weekend after next. Also in the Champions League places right now, Leicester and Swansea on eight points. Man United, Arsenal, and Liverpool all sitting beneath them on seven points. Obviously, I think that will change for all of those teams, and they will continue to rise. Nonetheless, uh, that's where they are now, five points adrift of the leaders. We mentioned Chelsea down on four points, as well as Aston Villa, Norwich, and West Bromwich. And Bournemouth, 
who had uh, picked up their first win the weekend before and another one this week, another uh, point this week rather, in their draw with Leicester City. And currently in the relegation spots, Stoke, Newcastle, and Sunderland. Uh, Stoke, I would think, uh, with their pickups of Jordan Shakiri and Ibrahim Afalai, as well as many of the other moves they made at the Britannia uh, over the summer, I think they will continue to rise, as will Newcastle. Sunderland, however, I would expect to see in that place as we move forward. All right, we have to talk about the transfer market. As I mentioned, the window is now closed. That was the closing of a window. Uh, the transfer window is closed in England. It is closing very shortly in Scotland, and it is closed all throughout Europe. Uh, big signing over the weekend, much uh, rumored for a very long time. Kevin De Bruyne coming to Manchester City from Wolfsburg for more than £50 million. This is an incredible pickup for Man City. Now who will have uh, De Bruyne and Raheem Sterling running the wings. If you can put uh, a, a team of 11 up to stop them, you don't play in the Premier League. It has really cemented Man City's uh, place as title contenders and with the title theirs to lose at this point as long as De Bruyne can stay healthy. This is a, a young man who has proven himself with Chelsea in the Premier League, uh, who has, whose star has been on the rise at Wolfsburg uh, and who I think will shine in the Premier League, especially with uh, Raheem Sterling on the other wing, with Cuneguero up top, and with uh, David Silva and Yaya Toure and, and, and Jesus Navas uh, in the middle of the midfield uh, to make sure that, that uh, the ball continues to stay in possession and moving forward. Man City are scary. This is a team that is built not just to win uh, the Premier League, but I think is in incredible position uh, possibly to win themselves a treble. Uh, depending on how their FA Cup draw goes, uh, and we will talk about their UEFA Cup draw or UEFA Champions League draw rather. But to be sure, the addition of Kevin De Bruyne puts them in the catbird seat for uh, winning the Premier League in 2015-2016. Uh, speaking uh, a little bit about Wolfsburg to fill the hole of De Bruyne leaving, they did pick up Julian Draxler from uh, Schalke Fier, uh, whom they beat three 0 at the weekend. Uh, it was a compelling match if you saw it on, on Fox Sports 1. Uh, but now the teams are, are in fact, totally different um, going into the rest of the season with De Bruyne out and Draxler moving across. The other big transfer news in Manchester, and, and this story, if you followed it at all, is, is just beyond the beyond of, of everything from bizarre to surreal and back again. Late yesterday, before the close of the Spanish transfer window, it was reported as... So many of these reports had come out uh, that the David De Gea deal to Real Madrid from Manchester United was back on. And despite reports earlier in the weekend, which were very quickly rubbished, that the deal would include the return of Gareth Bale, uh, as well as some enormous sum and David De Gea coming from Manchester United. Uh, what ended up being uh, on the table was that Keylor Navas, the Costa Rican goalkeeper uh, and World Cup hero for Costa Rica, would in fact be the player coming back from, from uh, Real Madrid to Old Trafford. For those who are unfamiliar with the transfer system, this is actually something you don't see very often, a player trade, much like we would see in baseball here in the U.S. Uh, so it was a bit of a blockbuster. It was going to be uh, De Gea and about uh, £20 million going to Real Madrid for Keeler Navas. And 
it was reported right at the close of the Spanish transfer window, which was about 24 hours earlier than the was midnight Spanish time, so about 24, 25 hours before the close of the English window, that the deal was done, the physicals needed to be had, but the paperwork was, was in motion or had been completed. Well, it emerged shortly after the close of the Spanish window that the paperwork had, in fact, not been done. And it's a little bit of back and forth, and both teams now have released statements um, clarifying in their minds what happened and pushing the blame for this on to the other party. But what it appears in reporting that came from Sky Sports' incredible La Liga reporter Guillaume Belag, great follow on Twitter, make sure you're, you're following him if you love La Liga football, uh, what, what became apparent is that Manchester United sent their paperwork to Real Madrid in a file form, either in a file format that they couldn't read on their computers in Madrid, or that they had sent it via fax machine and that the fax trolla had not uh, completed the message in time or some combination thereof. Nonetheless, Real Madrid claims that they didn't receive the paperwork until 12.02 a.m. Spanish time, and because of that, they could not log into the La Liga. This is all true, and it's killing me. They could not log into the La Liga transfer system to, to push the paperwork to the league because the window had closed, and because of that, the deal crumbled immediately. Real woke up this morning, said they weren't going to appeal the decision. They're not going to get David De Gea in this uh, transfer window. Who knows if they'll try again in January? Who knows, frankly, if Van Hal and the leadership at Man United will deal with Madrid and vice versa in future transfer windows. This seems like just such an enormous blunder on all fronts here that I can't believe that two of the richest, most valuable franchises in the world with some of the most premier players in the world can't figure out that you're supposed to send a PDF instead of a, instead of a JPEG, or, and I swear I can't believe this one even more, that you just should not be using a fax trolla for anything at this point. It is not 1989. There are better ways of doing this. Frankly, there's, there's some of this that goes on in the leagues that goes on to uh, the different transfer windows themselves. That's a system that probably bears looking into in greater depth should there be a uniform transfer window run through <laughs> FIFA or at least through some sort of international governing body so that we don't run into players and teams missing out on these opportunities. I don't know. The fact of the matter is... David De Gea is staying at Old Trafford. Kaylor Navis is staying in Real Madrid. The bank accounts will stay the same. And somehow, some way, both these teams are going to move forward. I think it matters a whole lot less for Real, frankly, than it does for Man United. And I will be very interested to see if when Manchester United take the field uh, next weekend after the international break, whether David De Gea is in uniform, whether he is in the starting eleven. He should be. He is probably the best, if not one of the best goalkeepers in the world. There's no reason they shouldn't be playing him anymore. There is no more transfer drama. I don't know what Van Hall's thinking is on this. I don't know what Louis Van Hall's thinking is on anything, as is probably relatively apparent. But uh, David De Gea staying at Old Trafford at least until the next window opens in January. We will see what, if anything, teams are, are ready to do then. Uh, De Gea should feature for Spain uh, this weekend uh, as they move into European qualifying which we'll talk about in a little bit here as well. Um, one transfer that somehow Louis van Gaal was able to complete uh, late today before the close of the English window 
uh, signing Anthony Martial for 39 million pounds from Monaco. Martial uh, now has uh, the distinction of having the highest transfer fee paid for a player under the age of 20. Martial is only 19. Uh, Van Hal shelling out 39 million uh, to the Monagas club for the teenager. I don't know if he'll feature. I'm surprised, frankly, he didn't go immediately back out on loan. Uh, but Van Hall seems to think he's a player of great quality that they can that they'll be able to get something from. I admit I haven't seen a lot of Martial play uh, for Monaco. He did feature in their um, in their ties against Valencia uh, during the Champions League playoffs, uh, which does not, by the way, tie him to Monaco uh, for the rest of the. Champions League, he will be able to play for Manchester United because uh, a player can play for one team in the run-up to the first-round draw, uh, go through the transfer window, and then play for his new club after the draw. So no problems there. Martial will be able to play for Man United as they return to Europe. Uh, nonetheless, it's a, it's an interesting signing for Van Hall taking on a young player like this. You alternatively hear about Martial in the press being talked to as the next Thierry Henry, which if that's true, this is, this is cheap for a youngster to come to Old Trafford uh, and being totally unproven and, uh, uh, and new and for that and raw, a raw talent, which, speak, which, which I think Van Hall will be able to mold, and I think he likes that. Uh, all that being said, £39 million pounds for, a, for an unproven youngster, even if he's going to be the next Thierry Henry seems a little out of character for, uh, for the Red Devils, but we'll see what happens there. One other uh, piece of news that did happen that we should pass on, the American defender DeAndre Yedlin, who has been at Tottenham Hotspur since the January transfer window uh, last year, moved across to uh, Sunderland on a year-long loan where he will almost certainly get playing time. He was not going to get playing time at Tottenham Hotspur, it appeared which a lot of us who care about the U.S. men's national team were uh, not very happy about. Yedlin needs to get some more miles under his heels, and I think he'll get the opportunity to do that at Sunderland. And clearly at Sunderland, defense is going to be needed uh, as that team continues to uh, move towards relegation. Uh, but a year-long loan for Yedlin uh, probably being made available again, I would assume, uh, in uh, next summer's window by Tottenham, possibly for a full deal. Uh, elsewhere in Europe and, and, and perhaps even elsewhere in the England uh, Premier League. Um, but a good, uh, a good step for DeAndre. We, I wish him well, and uh, I think he will do well uh, for the Wareside Club in the Northeast. Two other teams that we should talk about, Arsenal and Liverpool, both of whom are coming off uh, lackluster results, a win in the case of Arsenal, but without a goal scored, only an own goal, and Liverpool's uh, shellacking at the hands of West Ham. Both of them did nothing. Uh, Arsenal is the only club in the top five leagues in Europe uh, that did not sign an outfield player, which is, say, a non-goalkeeper. They did, of course, sign Petr Cech earlier in the window, but did not sign an outfield player in the, the summer transfer window. Arsene Wenger is, has made this now a referendum on his managerial tenure, in my opinion. If Arsenal failed to win either the Premier League or the Champions League, I think Wenger almost certainly will resign or will be forced out at Arsenal after this season. The Arsenal fans I was listening to, uh, many of them calling in the talk sport uh, and some of the other uh, England uh, radio stations on transfer deadline day, many of them not happy with the manager, many of them saying, all right, Arsene, if you think that all we needed 
was to get Petr Cech in goal, and then we're going to go and win a, a European double, then show us. Uh, it's becoming clear that Giroud is not a real viable option uh, long-term in, uh, as a striker. He's, he's probably moving into the phase of his career where he is a substitute, and they don't have anybody else that can really play up top because Arsene Wenger has not shown a, a, a desire to, to play Theo Walcott there. Maybe he will now uh, with, the, with the pressure on, who knows. Uh, nonetheless, Arsenal was a team that was in need of bulking up, whether in the midfield or at the front. They did nothing. It will be interesting to see. Simultaneously, Liverpool uh, not acting today. They did get to shed Mario Balotelli finally. Uh, like I said, they did pick up Joe Gomez, and I think that will be a, a good pickup for them. Uh, but remains to be seen how long Brendan Rodgers can hang on in Anfield. Uh, if we see the Liverpool of the West Ham shellacking as opposed to the Liverpool of uh, the nil-nil draw with Arsenal or some of their earlier results in the season. Let's take a look elsewhere in Europe. The UEFA Champions League draw uh, was held last Thursday. Uh, it presents some interesting matchups across the uh, eight groups of the round of 32. Uh, just looking through them... Um, to, to take a look at some of those matchups in Group A, Paris Saint-Germain and Real Madrid are drawn against each other with Shakhtar Donetsk and Malmo. Uh, group B uh, should be an easy way through, easier way through for Manchester United, who draw Eindhoven, Seska Moscow, and the, uh, the, the recently depleted Wolfsburg. Uh, group C should be interesting with Atletico Madrid and Benfica uh, drawing Galatasaray and Astana. Should be easily through for Atletico there, but Galatasaray, I think, could... Uh, could work to qualify for the knockout phase. Group D presents a lot of interest for me. Uh, Juventus and Manchester City drawn against each other with Sevilla. That could almost be a little bit of a group of death with the way Sevilla's form has been going in Spain. Uh, and those three will have Borussia Mönchengladbach in from Germany as well. Uh, easy one, uh, easy-ish one, I should say, as, as easy as the Champions League draw goes for Barcelona, who are drawn against Bayer Leverkusen, uh, Roma, and Bate Borazov. Uh, Leverkusen have made some moves in the transfer window. Uh, they'll probably come out of that second in the group. Uh, Roma coming off a strong win against Juventus, but uh, should be relatively smooth sailing for Barcelona getting through. Uh, we talked about Arsenal and, and what they might be able to do in Europe and now making this a referendum on Wenger. Well, he's going to have to go through Bayern Munich to get to the round of 16, and that has not gone well uh, in the past uh, for the London club. He is lucky in that he gets Olympiakos and Dinamo Zagreb, uh, both of which could surprise uh, throughout the group. But uh, having to go uh, to Bayern and, and play them twice in the, in the group stages should be uh, uh, quite a challenge for the North London club. Chelsea also get uh, not necessarily a walkover, but not the hardest group uh, I've ever seen. They get Porto, Dinamo Kiev, and Maccabi Tel Aviv in Group G. Uh, more than anything for Chelsea, that's going to present some hard travel. So again, we look at Mourinho and how he doesn't like to manage his squad, really, and doesn't like to change out players. Well, now he's going to have to go to Portugal, to the Ukraine, and to Israel uh, throughout the course of the season, and that's going to present a little bit of a travel nightmare for a team that is aging. And finally, uh, in uh, Group H, Zenit St. Petersburg, Lyon, Ghent, and Valencia uh, will will play there. Should be an interesting group uh, to see if Zenit uh, can go far in this tournament, and I think they've got a great opportunity to do so. Also, 
uh, in Europe. I talked a little bit about Wolfsburg, three, Wolfsburg and their 3 0 pasting of Schalkefeer at the weekend. Some other, um, some other action uh, throughout uh, the Bundesliga. That was how the weekend started. Uh, but Bayern Munich with a 3 0 win over Bayern Leverkusen. Uh, Ingolstadt get three points uh, over FC Augsburg 1 0. And Borussia Dortmund on a roll uh, beat Hertha Berlin. Uh, 3-1 on Sunday. Uh, Dortmund, uh, a team definitely on the rise uh, and I think is, is one that uh, will be continuing to compete with Bayern as, uh, as the season rolls on. Uh, La Liga had some great action over the weekend as well. Uh, Barcelona was able to outlast Malaga 1-0 on a Thomas Vermaelen 73rd minute goal. Real Madrid, a 5-0 pasting of Real Betis, so they are, uh, oh, their account is open with three points and five goals uh, after their 0-0 draw with Sporting Gijon in week one. They're able to, uh, to take Real Betis to the woodshed. Uh, I tweeted it over the weekend if you caught it. Uh, if you didn't, make sure you go back and look at James Rodriguez's Golazo bicycle kick goal. Uh, you know, those don't come along very often, but when they do, you've got to um, you've got to make sure that you uh, take a look at those. And then elsewhere, the other incredibly surprising result, frankly, Ibar 2-0 over Athletic Bilbao. Ibar sit at the top of the Spanish La Liga table, goals from Berhon on 34 minutes and Adrian on 61 minutes. Uh, so mighty Ibar uh, sitting atop the table with Atletico Madrid and Celta Vigo. Uh, Barcelona sitting in fourth and Real in fifth, um, and Real Betis, Hetafe, and Athletic sitting in the relegation positions as of this potting. Uh, Serie A in League One, uh, the two matches to talk about there, Roma 2-1 over Juventus. That was uh, a bit of a shock result uh, in Turin. And Paris Saint-Germain making an early season statement over what many think would be the second uh, club in France with a 3-0 victory over Monaco. Uh, it could be a, a pointing all signs towards a Paris Saint-Germain cakewalk to the Ligue 1 title this year. We are sadly coming into the international break. I'll, I'll give you a moment. You know, the international break is, is much maligned and it does take away you know Saturday mornings of of watching Premier League football, you know, with kith and kin and, and all the rest of it and watching European football throughout the weekend, club football. But there is a lot going on on the international stage. We're building towards next year's European championships to be held in France, and we're going to talk a little bit about the qualifying there. The USA's men's national team will also be in action. Uh, they named their 23-man roster last week. Uh, not too many, too, too many surprises, although Tim Howard is back in the squad and has been told publicly by uh, manager Jurgen Klinsmann that he does have to fight for his spot as the first-choice goalkeeper, uh, though Howard had a great performance for Everton in their nil-nil draw with Tottenham over the weekend. Uh, Guzan has held, uh, has held the fort very well um, and is almost 10 years younger than Howard, so it's worth noting that, uh, that, that we, are, we, we, we see the youth movement coming uh, a little bit the future is there, but uh, Howard is back in form, having taken more than a year off on sabbatical uh, from the men's national team. Looking forward to seeing him back in a U.S. shirt. It just always looks good when Tim Howard is in goal for the U.S. Uh, look, really looking forward to the games this weekend. 
Uh, Matt Beasler is again in the squad after having been dropped for the Gold Cup, so it's good to see him back. Jeff Cameron will be there. John Anthony Brooks. Ventura Alvarado getting another shot. I'm I'm not as huge a fan of his as uh, as others, and certainly as much as Jurgen Klinsmann is, but uh, I'm sure he'll feature. Uh, one of the games being played in Foxborough, Jermaine Jones of New England Revolution will be there and, and looking to uh, recapture some of that uh, World Cup glory that he faced. Fulham's new signing, Tim Ream, is in the squad, as is Bobby Wood, uh, the goal scorer from... Uh, from, from early, the earlier European friendlies, Jossie Zardes and uh, the aforementioned DeAndre Yedlin will be there too, among many others, for these two matchups that are coming with uh, Peru and Brazil, where I think we're going to learn a lot about what this team's going to look like going forward. Uh, and it's always fun to see the U.S. play Brazil uh, in, uh, in the U.S. Uh, two additions, we think, will be, I think, rather, will be made uh, for the Brazil game. Clint Dempsey and Michael Bradley are left off the 23-man roster at this point, uh, giving them a break against Peru. Uh, I'm, I'm quite certain, as, as well as many others, that they'll be swapped out, um, possibly with a few other additions for that Brazil game. It'll be good to see both of them back in the shirts. Uh, of the U.S., you can catch these games Friday night, uh, U.S. taking on Peru at uh, the Robert F. Kennedy Stadium in our nation's capital. That game is live on Fox Sports 1 at 4 p.m. Pacific. And then next Tuesday, the big tilt with the Salisau, with the Brazilians, uh, 5 p.m. Pacific at uh, Gillette Stadium in Foxborough, Massachusetts. That game will be on ESPN 2. Elsewhere, European qualifying, as I mentioned, is underway. Uh, it, we are coming right down to... Uh, the end of of uh, the the qualification there, as we look towards the tournament next year in France, uh, three matches to go for each team. There'll be two this weekend, and then there's another match day coming up in October. Uh, looking at some of the matches that matter this weekend, Belgium Belgium uh, will take on Bosnia. That should be a really great match if you want to see. Uh, a lot of the Belgian Red Devils, who many of whom are also Manchester United Red Devils, uh, taking on Ed and Dzeko and crew. That'll be at 11.45. On Thursday uh, is when the, these match days start. That's going to be available on Fox Sports 2 and Fox Soccer to go. Uh, Israel, who are currently third in Group B as well, they'll take on Andorra. That'll be on Fox Soccer to go. And Iceland, who are uh, number one in the group in Group A in terms of qualifying, uh, we'll take on Netherlands. That's on uh, the Watch ESPN app and ESPN3, also 11.45 a.m. Pacific on Thursday. The way that the qualification works, I should mention, is the top two teams in each of the qualifying groups advance to the final tournament. Then there is a playoff amongst the uh, third-place teams to qualify. Uh, so it is important to be in that, in that top three uh, in, in terms of qualification. Looking forward to Friday. Big matches. Germany take on Poland. Poland are currently one point ahead of Germany after six matches. Uh, that match will be on Fox Sports 1 at 11.45. Uh, the Republic of Ireland take on the mighty Jib. Uh, Gibraltar on the Watch ESPN app. Friday, all these games, 11.45. Uh, and Hungary and Romania uh, fighting, for a, fighting for spots. Romania on top of Group F. As of this potting, that's on Fox Sports 2 at 11.45 on Friday. Saturday, uh, Spain and Slovakia uh, will go head-to-head. Those two are at the top of Group C, looking to advance to the final tournament, 11.45 a.m. on the Watch ESPN app. 
Sunday, uh, Turkey and the Netherlands uh, beginning the wraparound uh, fixtures for Group A. That's on. That's at 9 a.m. Sunday on uh, the Watch ESPN app. Norway and Croatia also on Watch ESPN. That should be a good one. And uh, Iceland and Kazakhstan as Iceland look to cement their status at the top of uh, Group A. Uh, moving into next week, England uh, have a couple of matches. They have already been assured of at least third place in their group, in Group E, but they do have to take on Switzerland, who are also in second place in that group. That's 11.45 a.m. on Tuesday. That'll be on the Watch ESPN app uh, through ESPN Deportes. Uh, and continuing to look ahead, England also have Estonia uh, at home that will be on Thursday of next week at 11.45. Uh, Italy and Croatia uh, will also meet up. I'm sorry, Italy, Italy and Bulgaria will meet up. That is on Saturday at 11.45 through ESPN. Italy currently sits second in the group behind Croatia, and it'll be an important matchup for them uh, moving forward. These are going to be great, a great look at, at national team prowess and how the European tournament should stack up as we go into the Premier Tournament next summer. Uh, so definitely take some time out and, uh, and watch some of those. A couple other things I want to talk to before we bring in our very first guest on the podcast. Um, if you didn't see it, the uh, Gaelic Games All-Ireland football semifinal was last weekend. You all caught that, right? If you're not watching Irish football, by the way, it's great. It's basically regular football with American football with Australian football all kind of lumped together, and there are goalposts. Um, totally worth watching. Dublin and Mayo ended up playing to this weird draw, which means there's a replay coming next week, but Mayo had tried to clear the ball to end. It's a 70-minute game. On 70 minutes, they tried to clear. Dublin were able to come back, score, and tie the game to send them to a replay. So that's coming this Saturday. It will take place at Croke Park in Dublin. It's available through the GAA's website. If you go to gaa.ie, you can uh, check your local listings for time and station through that website. And then the All-Ireland Final for football, the winner of of the replay semifinal will play Kerry at Croke Park. That's coming up on the 20th of September. Uh, we'll have a, a more full preview going into that because Kerry, which is where my ancestral home is uh, in in Ireland, have been a power for decades in Irish football and uh, have finally come back to to prominence and prowess. Uh, it's a great game; you should watch it. I know if you are if you are here on the western edge of the American experiment, uh, those games usually run at Keysar Pub. Uh, so check with your bartender for time and beer prices. But join us. Uh, or, or join, join friends at Kizar Pub and, and watch some great Irish football. A little bit of quick cricket news to discuss. Uh, the, the only uh, 2020 match of the Ashes series uh, was this week uh, at the Swalek Stadium in Cardiff, and England beat Australia by five runs. I managed to catch the last few overs uh, of this, and uh, for those of you not familiar with the 2020 version of cricket, these, this is the short version of limited overs cricket. So each team basically gets 180 pitches, 180 balls, to, to make as many runs as they can. Um, it is a, a usually three to four hour version of the game, very television friendly, very accessible, becoming quite popular, uh, especially with leagues like the Indian Premier League and the Big Bash League down in Australia. Uh, the international game is really just beginning to come to the fore. Uh, this is the only, unfortunately, T20 
as it's called, uh, in the Ashes series. Uh, Australia looked like they were batting towards victory, and then uh, England were able to come in, take some last wickets, and force Australia to come up just five runs short. A really cracking game uh, to set up for the rest of the limited over summer and early fall in England, uh, which starts Thursday at, uh, at 9 a.m. Pacific on the Watch ESPN app for the first one-day international. That is the 50-overs version of the game, uh, which Australia recently won as world champions uh, and should be a fantastic uh, look at uh, what England cricket has been able to do on the one-day game since their failures at the World Cup and how Australia are looking to reload for another World Cup victory in 2019 back in England. Um, at this point, I want to bring in our very first guest on the podcast. Uh, he is our senior foreign correspondent. Uh, right now, he is in a not very foreign locale, which we talk about. But I mentioned that what I want to do with the podcast is not just give an American look to foreign sports that are happening all around the world, but I also want to get a view from abroad as to what's happening uh, here at home. And over the last few weeks, a lot's happened with the Boston Red Sox, which is my home team. Uh, for baseball, and uh, and James Turco, who is our senior correspondent, senior foreign correspondent, is his as well. So we took some time and discussed all things Red Sox and a little bit about what it would look like if baseball players played the older version of the game and played cricket. And here's my interview with James now. This call is being recorded. Hey, dude. Hello. So, you are our senior foreign correspondent here on the View from the Western Stand, uh, although you're, uh, you're calling in from a, a different kind of foreign country today. Where in the world are you today? Well, I'm in Arlington, Massachusetts. Um, scenic. Oh, so you've moved, you've moved back to the United States from the People's Republic of Cambridge. Well, I've stepped over the line. And, I see. And um, I'll tell you. It's, uh, it's definitely noticeable. I, I can imagine. The air is, uh, just smells more of freedom and, and Donald Trump's cologne. Uh, That's so it's right. going to be back, back right. in the U.S. Um, let's talk a little bit about, since you are, since you are in the metropolitan Boston area, let's, let's talk a little bit about uh, your team and mine, the Boston Red Sox. And there's been some good news and some bad news of late coming out of Fenway um, and the ownership group. The, the good news, in my estimation, and you tell me what, what you think of this, is the hiring of Dave Dombrowski to come in as general manager, or uh, as president of baseball operations, rather, um, and really remake the front office. It was a little bit of a, a, a weird in-season change, but I think it was, in my opinion, it was sort of timing more than anything. Uh, but what's the reaction been in Boston to Dombrowski's hiring and, and what uh, it's thought he can bring to the club? I'll tell you, I think most Red Sox fans I talk to are a little more guarded. Um, I think there's, you know, this team has had four basement seasons in the last five. Granted, one of those in between was a world championships. So, you know, what can you say? I mean, let's not forget, you and I were in college. We just wanted to see them win, win once before we dropped dead, right? And uh, we got that, and we got it two more times. So we're a little spoiled in that regard. But I got to tell you, I'm excited about Dombrowski. And the moment he got fired from Detroit, I think everyone kind of wondered where he was going to land, and I think Boston just made a lot of sense. Well, that's, that's what, I, you know, Nate Silver kind of put out on, on 538 was there was one important free agent 
that's coming online in the 2015 offseason, and it's Dave Dombrowski. And the Red Sox were able to swoop in and get him before the end of the season and before anybody else, I think, had a chance to to do that. And, um, you know, for me, it's a really important message to the fan base that um, what was happening you know, under the, the reign and leadership of Larry Lucchino and Ben Charrington just wasn't going to be tolerated anymore. Uh, and I think that's an important step to make for a fan base, especially as you say, three out of four losing seasons with a world championship, you know, sort of slammed in the middle of that. Uh, but I think for one, it's, it's good that the ownership group took stock of what was going on, knew they had to make a change and went out and found the best guy for the job. Yeah. And I think, I think people forget that this man um, is a veteran. Uh, he built four incredibly competitive teams. I mean, he built the, uh, the early nineties Expos dynasty he built the late 90s Marlins team, which then got sold. He built the early 2000s Marlins team, and now he built this most current incarnation in Detroit, which say what you will about their inability to get over the hump and actually win the World Series. Do you remember the Detroit Tigers in 2003? Yeah. Yeah, they, I mean, that, that's right. We were in college, and they lost 115 games, right? Yeah, they had a 20-game loser in Jeremy Bonderman, and I think another 20-game loser in somebody else, probably Nate Robinson or whatever. But, man, this sure man Nate built – the only thing yeah. I remember about the, the, the time of Nate Robertson in Detroit was that in every single game, some commentator from the up from the opposing team in any game that I watched called Nate Robertson effectively wild. And it was usually when Detroit was losing 10 to 2. And yeah, Robertson I mean, was still in the game a, in the fourth inning. This was a bad ball club, and they really didn't have a lot of talent in the pipeline, and he built that team. And he used his chips to go all in on the right trades. I mean, Miguel Cabrera you know, say what you will about his various DUIs and generally bad body, but the man can hit a baseball. And what did he give up for him? Cameron Maben and bad Andrew Miller. Ooh, yeah, bad Andrew Miller. Yeah, before, before we Andrew got Miller. good bullpen Andrew Miller. Um, before yeah, and, and after, of course, MVP Baseball 2005 Andrew Miller, who, as you know, and that was Adam was Miller. Out. That was Adam Miller. Who oh, that's Adam Miller. Apologies. Google him. Yeah. Uh, but something else the ownership group has done of late has really rubbed Red Sox fans the wrong way. That is the this weird saga that's playing out now in the media of the firing of of longtime Red Sox television commentator Don Orsillo. And, you know, Dio has been a mainstay through three world championships, has seen good and bad with the Red Sox, as we all have, but uh, is a New England native. And I thought has always done a, a really professional job in the booth with Jerry Remy on, on Nesson and was just sort of unceremoniously canned uh, when, you know, the, the younger uh, spryer version of Don Orsillo, Dave O'Brien made himself available to Nesson is what it sounds like to me. But what's your read on it from, from back home? Yeah. I mean, this is, this is really sort of sad old guard Red Sox where we take a beloved figure and for one reason or another, the, the, the ownership group of the powers that be decide it's time to run them out of town and then the smear campaign begins. And I think there, you're sort of seeing the beginning of that. And it's really just unfortunate because I don't see what Don did to deserve this. I mean, the quality of the, of the, um, the play-by-play broadcasting was not the reason people aren't tuning into Nesson, guys. I mean, it's, it's, you, you put a team on the field that's this bad and you expect people. I mean, nobody's going to watch. Yeah, I mean, a 61-70 and 70 team with no bullpen to speak of and a, and a frontline starter that – you know, fluctuates between one of the, between being one of the game's best and one of the game's worst means, you know, you're just not putting the quality product on the field. And again, three out of four losing seasons. I can't imagine why people aren't tuning in to watch Gary Streisky redo the internet on Nesson. But, yeah. you know, at the same time, yeah. Stello has been a consummate professional, has done nothing yeah. but, um, but really sort of elevate 
the the medium in a lot of ways. And and you know, when you are the Red Sox commentator, you are a member of the family in a lot of New England homes. And you know, a lot of yeah. us I think have felt that way about ourselves. He's been around for almost as long as Ken Coleman and, and Kurt Gowdy at this point. And um, you know, it's really it's sad to see him be railroaded out of town. And you know, again, I think you're right. I think what the ownership group has done <clears throat> is they've gotten very good at this idea of of smear campaigns in the media when things don't go right or when they need to make a change and don't and want to be seen as totally blameless. And it's unfortunate that that Do has uh, has taken the front of that. But um, I mean, there really is. You know, I, I joked with you earlier about this, but there really is a sort of Soviet Stalinist element to all of this, right? I mean, the team owns the broadcasting company in Nesson. The team owns the newspaper of record in town. And so, you know, somebody gets run out on a rail and then the propaganda pieces come up and then history is rewritten. I mean, it's, it's, yeah. it's, 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 uh, it's disturbing. And you'd hope, you'd hope that what they did to Terry Francona and what the, the backlash of the fans, because I don't think the fans ever swallowed any of the narrative on Francona. No, I think that's, I think that's true. And, you know, the Bob Holer piece that came out after, after Francona's firing, I think really cemented in the hearts and minds of a lot of Red Sox fans, just what kind of terrible person Larry Lucchino is. And frankly, I won't be sad to see him gone. And I'm not saying that Henry and Werner or, or, or even, you know, Charles Steinberg or anybody else in the ownership group is, is utterly blameless and it all falls on no. Lucchino. But, you know, Lucchino has been a, <clears throat> a, a hurricane of bad news for Red Sox fans. Yes, yeah, you know, this mean- ownership group, yes, this ownership group has brought three world championships to Boston. And for that, you know, we will always be thankful to them. But there's been a lot of mess in between when the Red Sox, you know, used to be a model organization as you know, over the last decade or so, but beginning with the way Theo Epstein, uh, you know, left and then didn't leave and then finally did leave the Red Sox through yeah, uh, the gorilla as, suit, what happened anyone? with Francona and now this. I mean, it's it, it's really uh, it, it, it's a really sad testament to um, what happens when the focus is too much on the business side of this. Um, and, and I mean, that's it's an understandable part of the world. I mean, I'm, I'm not, I'm not sitting here saying, you know, you must not think about baseball as a business. Obviously it is. Uh, but there has to be a balance, you know, between something that is so near and dear to the hearts of so many people, which does, you know, promote, you know, the, 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 the general economy and, and, uh, in Boston, especially, and, and has, well, let's not forget impact. something. This team is still making money. I mean, there oh, yeah. is no way. That this team right. is not making money. In that way, they're a, they really are a model organization. They're making money hand over fist, and they know it. But, you know, it's this will not last forever if this is how they're going to treat people. The Yankees learned that. I mean, by the time Gene Yankee finally left, the, the people of Boston had been done with the Yankees for 35 years, and they were an anachronism in baseball. And, um, yeah. <laughs> you know, when, no, um, when this ownership group came in, it was, uh, it was seen as a revelation. But their time will come too. In any case, yeah. Agreed. Uh, uh, the last thing I want to add about our village is before we just before we yeah. get off the subject, uh, the man looks like a thumb. That's true. I want to give credit to Don Orsola where it's due. If you can be on television for 15 years in one of the largest markets in the country and look like a thumb, that's a special amount of talent. Um, I mean, so I, I think it's I, worth. I, you know, but I do. I will say. I hope. I hope he goes on and gets a, a national gig somewhere. Or um, a local gig with a, a prestigious franchise, something like that. I mean, because the man deserves it. And he's a class act and he's a professional. He is. He's all of those things. And so we wish Don well and, and, uh, and hope that, that he does sort of land on his feet. As long as it's, he doesn't take over for John Sterling or anything weird like that. Um, 
now you know because you're one of the the great listeners of this podcast i'm sure uh i am we we do talk about foreign sports a little bit but there's one sort of crossover area that's always intrigued me and you and i have had conversations about this what would happen if major league baseball decided to field a team of 11 guys to play cricket against maybe a world 11 kind of thing you know your your various uh uh, Virat Kohli's and Michael Clark's and Joe Roots and people like that. I'm sure those names all mean something to you, James. Now, unless, of course. Um, let's let's pick let's pick a baseball eleven. So we think about it. Yeah. You know, how to construct a team? Think of two two leadoff guys. You know, two power pitchers, two junk ballers, uh, four guys that have that have a good glove and a good stick, and then a catcher. So let's 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 start with the, yeah, the been, fireballers. Who, yeah, who would you? I've been, been thinking about the leadoff hitters. Who would you have open yeah, for? Yeah, yeah. So I think the first guy who jumps into mind uh, because I, I, you know, again, I have a tenuous grasp on the rules of cricket, but I'm kind of envisioning a, a pesky guy who can, you know, make a lot of contact, a little bit of speed, um, really hard to, you know, strike out. I mean, I know you don't strike out in cricket, but you want to protect that wicket. Mm-hmm. And so the first guy that jumps to mind to me is Matt Carpenter. Yeah, I would put him. You on know. There. Oh, yeah, he's scrappy, he's little. He just seemingly bat on ball all the time, and he can run a little bit, hit for a little pie, do a little everything, but he's not going to – he's going to make contact. I, I, would, so, I would do that for two reasons. One, for all of the reasons you lay out, and two, I would love to see anybody from St. Louis, Missouri at a cricket match and trying to figure it out. I think that the best fans in well, baseball – Well, they're the best fans in baseball. They are the best, the best fans, fans in baseball, in the best fans in baseball, and I think it would be really interesting to see them try to figure that out. Um, also, I, Cardinal you, Devil Magic – is not to be disregarded exactly. here. Exactly. I think that's important to, uh, to sort of fill in that blank. Um, yeah. If I'm looking back over, you know, say 30 years too, um, I'd say you have to put Ricky Henderson on that list. I mean, he's yeah. the best leadoff Ricky. guy I've ever seen, may ever see. And I just think Ricky would be a wonderful addition. Uh, I'd love to see, you know, like test match whites, big shin guards, you know, walking out there with a big oh, yeah. willow. And I mean, Ricky would. I don't think you could. I don't think you could ever get Ricky out. For one thing, oh, and you'd love to get him to questions after the game. And he would be protecting the wicket at all costs because he can just hit everything. Yeah. The other guy who jumps into my mind, and, and this is another guy who's retired, but he really made a lot of contact, is Juan Pierre. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he had great mm-hmm. contact numbers in his day, and he could run. Oh, you. And he can run. I could see just a lot of these little dink and dunk hits. I'm sure there's a name for that in cricket, um, which you'll fill in line. There, there it is. Um, And just do that all day on you. Yeah. All right. That that. So any, I think two of those three. Those are those are some great uh, those some great thoughts. Now, in terms of fireballers, I'm not going to let you get out of this without saying Roger Clemens has to be on the team. So. I can see Rod Clemens. I can see, but I mean, the the, the sight of the um, the archetypal Texan taking the cricket pitch. It is a pitch, right? It is a pitch. Very good. It is a pitch. Yeah, there it is. Um, I think that would be a sight to behold. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, I could just the see Texan. the old stories of of Roger getting rubbed down on his balls with icy hot before the game, and then just sprinting oh, yeah. out from the pavilion. You know the, you know all all those sort of. Uh, conservative, you know, members of the club are sitting there with Pim's cup or, or having a cuppa or whatever it is, and Roger Clemens comes storming out like a bull at the rodeo. I think that'd be a, a sight to be. Well, they'd have to start. They'd have to start serving Shiner. <laughs> oh. oh God, I can't even imagine what drinking Shiner at the temperature here is usually served at. 
how terrible that. I'm would pretty be. sure. I'm pretty sure the queen would die automatically. Yes. Yeah, I think that that might that might do it. Uh, that that might send it yeah. over the edge. Uh, yeah. One more fireball. Who else is your sort of opening seamer? You know, so I thought about this, and it. I'm thinking about I'm thinking about guys who can throw really hard, but then guys who also have nasty breaking stuff. And two two current pitchers come to mind. One of whom's on the shelf, and that's you, Darvish. Mm. Who I think he can throw gas, but man, he's got a wicked slider. Uh, he's got an ephus. Can you imagine an ephus at cricket? Oh, it's a, a slower be? ball. I think he, he could yeah. uh, he could deliver a nice slower ball and fool some guys and, and take a few wickets with that for sure. Yeah. And the other guy who I'd love to see throwing a cricket ball is Chris Sale. Oh yeah, that'd be that'd be something. He's uh, because you, I mean, he's just got such weird mechanics to begin with. That I think if yeah, you let yeah. him get a head start and, and, and come running at you, uh, yeah. I don't think you'd ever even see the ball. It would just be on top of you. Because he's all, he's all limbs, you know? Yeah, all. And limbs. like you say, that, that running start, can you imagine that slider, if he can get a running go? I mean, it looks like it's going to hit the batsman yeah, and then break would, a foot. Right. Yeah. I mean, imagine, so, that, imagine that slider and you get to, to find good line and length to then counteract the slide and bring it back one way or the other. I mean, it'd be, it'd be really interesting. Um, yeah, for sure. So, control junk baller spinner types. Who do you think? Oh, I got a good one. I've got the consummate junk baller of the last thirty years, and that's Jamie Moyer. Yeah, he he probably could still go out there, learn the game, and play. He's fifty-two years old, and he could probably oh, do yeah. It. yeah. Oh yeah, no question. I mean, and and the man throws seventy-eight miles an hour when he's throwing hard. Mm-hmm. So he's almost got. To rely on the on the on the spinning stuff and on the on the junk and, and I could definitely see that being okay. All right, so Jamie Moore, I would throw in a guy like uh, Steve Avery. I'd throw in Ooh. Sergio Romo. I would I would look to those there two guys as, as you know pitchers that have really great um, off speed stuff that could that could fool that could fool you and just take action. Yeah. Throw it away. Uh, let's let's round out with the the four outfield players. Oh, and catcher, obviously, um, you know somebody like a Yadier Molina or a tech, uh, tech, or a, tech, oh, yeah, tech, tech. It's a Veritek, obviously. Yeah, um, yeah. There's no, there's no one of Jason Veritek, Yadier Molina, and Buster Posey. Uh, yeah, probably, Posey's the other guy I thought about just because Posey. Posey's someone who you could see playing baseball in the 1890s. Yeah. You know, just yeah. he's got that, and, and look what he did to Scott Cousins. He <laughs> more. All right, who are your four all-rounders? Who are guys that can all right. guys field and guys that can hit? First guy right off the bat, Yasiel Puig. Oh. I don't see how you could keep him off of the field because the man does everything. And can you imagine cricket bat flips? I can't imagine that. I don't think the selectors would like it too much, but I think they'd, uh, I think they'd get used to it for the kind of power he brings. Oh yeah, and he's fast. He plays the field. He can do a little everything. I think Puig's your, your number one guy there. Mm-hmm. Another guy who I'd like to bring back, another blast from the past, is a uh, healthy young Ken Griffey Jr. Yep. Oh, Griffey. I mean, even and, even old Cincinnati Red Ken Griffey Jr. would be worth worth watching. Yeah, absolutely. Um, another guy. One last guy, and this is because he's got the Commonwealth connections. Joey Votto. Ken uh-huh. Griffey, Joey Votto. Um, yep. Really a good pure hitter, little little mobility can get around. A little bit got of good speed. hands though. I mean, he's got good got good first base hands, so he'd be good in 
playing the slips, good reaction time. Uh, yeah, for sure. And I mean, we can't we, we can't have this list and not talk about Mookie Betts because I think if Mookie. you put a cricket bat yeah. in Mookie's hands today, he'd be a a, a, a sizable force to contend. I mean, if you just send him over. Well, I think any of these guys, you know, the other thing you got to remember, any of these guys, you have to sit them down for, what do you think, a week, two weeks in the classroom to go over all the rules, make sure they're clear. Well, yeah, I mean, I think there's a there, there's a learning curve there, and it's, it's shorter for some. Mookie Betts, I think, could pick it up in about 10 minutes because I think he's just a natural athlete. As much of a sure. natural athlete as Ricky Henderson was, I think it might take him a little longer just because he's Ricky. Just because, you know, yeah. be a little bit. Right. You know, like, right. you know. Ricky's got to put this in, in context that Ricky can understand. Yeah. Be interesting. Right. Yeah. That's right. All right yeah. Well, listen, thanks for, uh, for calling in from, well, I guess not the People's Republic, but uh, from Arlington. Anyway. Adjacent to the People's Republic, yeah. And uh, we'll do this right. again. I know we've got, uh, we've got Canadian football we need to talk about one of these days. You've got to give me a Blue Bombers update. But we've got – Well, uh, I'll give you, got I can give you a report on the ground in a couple of weeks. I'll be in Toronto for an extended spell, so I can give you the, the beat on the Argonauts. All right. Um, I look forward, I look forward to read on the Toronto Argonauts season. We'll dig in on that. But we'll talk to and you again. And leading up to the Grey Cup this, uh, this season in scenic Winnipeg, Manitoba. So ah. I'm excited about that. Yes. Get excited. All right, man. Thanks for joining us. All righty. Take care. And that was our senior foreign correspondent, James Turco, there. I hope you enjoyed that. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. That's it for this week. I want to thank Les Sans-Culottes again for our uh, theme song, powered by the WFMU Free Music Archive. We're going to be back next week. We're going to talk uh, Rugby World Cup and NFL previews and take a look back at the international break. But for now, I'm Mike McGarry, and this has been The View from the Western Stand.